So, a number of people have talked to me in the past couple of weeks about my preaching and about the upcoming elections. And I have hesitated, not because I'm afraid to speak on the elections, I just haven't felt that it was appropriate to discuss my personal political views from the pulpit. However, as God would have it, our study this week has brought us to Isaiah chapters 32 and chapter 33 for such a time as this. I was greatly intrigued this week as I read the commentators. Each of the scholars that I consulted, it, it literally felt like they were sitting across the table from me over a cup of coffee discussing the upcoming elections. And I concluded that God indeed desires us to talk about these upcoming elections and specifically how we as Christians should be responding. So, without further ado, let's talk. Who should I vote for? Well, <laughs> vote for shame. No, as a Christian, I want to vote for someone who holds the same religious worldview as me. Okay, so I went online and I asked the question, what religion are the top three candidates. And I found out that Hillary Clinton is a member of a United Methodist Church and she does regularly attend. I found out that Gary Johnson is a member and grew up in a Lutheran church and regularly attends. And I learned that Donald Trump went to as a child and still is a member of a Presbyterian church and regularly attends. Depends on who you're talking to. Some say no, they don't. Some but according to what I was able to find on the internet, they all are active. Now they're going to start looking on the internet to see if what I'm saying is true. <laughs> they, are, they are all, according to what I have found, actively engaged in their religion. So, taking that at face value, I need to recognize that they are indeed all Christian. So, they have the same faith as I, not necessarily the same religious practices as I do, but they all state in their statement of faith, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross, that he went into the tomb. On the third day he rose from the dead. He is now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, and someday he will come to judge the living and the dead. So, all three of the top candidates running for President of the United States have a Christian mindset, a Christian faith, a Christian hope. So, that's one check mark on my little who should I vote for because I want to vote for someone who believes the way I believe. Obviously, I can't get them to be Nazarene. I mean, very, very few of us specifically. But, but at least they are Christian. So next question, or the next, if you will, litmus test is, what is their worldview and what are their politics? And I believe that those are not the same. Because if you go online and read a definition, the definition of a worldview is a set of beliefs or assumptions that a person uses when interpreting the world around them. 
Okay? For example, uh, my, my belief system around the origins of all of creation, all of the universe, are from a Christian worldview. I believe that God created all that, the, all that is. Okay? Um, so my worldview is influenced by my Christianity, and I understand it is my set of beliefs that help me to understand how to interpret this world. Politics are not the same as worldview. Politics are a person's opinions about the management of a particular government. Okay? So the difference is, as a Christian, my worldview is how do I interpret this world around me? As a Christian, my politics are specifically how should I run this particular government. So if I, as a Christian, were running for the office of mayor of the borough of Fairbanks, North Star Borough, I would have a Christian worldview that would guide how I interpret everything around me, but I would also have a philosophy, or an opinion at least, of how I should manage the government of the North Star Borough. So as I'm looking at this election situation and the three major choices, I mean, there's lots. If you go to one of some of the ballots, there's probably 10 or 12 people running for president. But the reality is, of the top three, Clinton, Johnson, and Trump, and notice I'm doing them in alphabetical order so that they're not in any particular way or shape of that I'm showing any kind of a, of a preference, okay? But Clinton, Johnson, and Trump are the top three. So if I want, from a Christian perspective, to look at them and, and judge how I should vote. Because, see, we have this unique privilege. Under our democratic republic form of government, we, the people, have the right to say who should be our leader. If it was a king situation, we wouldn't have that right. You kings and queens are done by lineage. They're done by family, the ones who hold the power. Now, yes, there are times when the people of the, of the particular nation don't like the king or the queen or whoever the ruler is, and they do an uprising, and they throw off that ruler, and then they bring to power some other ruler. But in our particular case, we do that every four years. Or, you know, every four years. We either say, out, we want somebody new. Or we say, we like what you're doing, stay for another four years. But our law says that at the end of eight years, anyone who has been in power over the United States government, at that point, has to leave. And another president has to come in. So that's where we're at at this point. In our form of government, in our form of running our country... The law of the land says that President Barack Obama has served the eight years that he's allowed to serve by law. It is time for him to vacate the office, and we the people need to elect the next president. So, as a Christian, if I look at the Bible, what does it say about who a good person to rule a country would be? Well, in the Bible's time, they didn't have presidents we didn't have this form of government back when the Bible was being written. Back then, the leader of a country was the king or the queen. So as we look at these scriptures that I have found, you're going to hear the scriptures saying, the king, blah, blah, blah. 
Okay? Well, understand that that was because that was the form of government that the Hebrew people had. And these scriptures were talking about the leader of the Hebrew government. Okay? So, here we go. Except that I don't have the theory. The marks of a good ruler. Or you could say the marks of a good king. Or the marks of a good president. And these are the verses that I found. Now, I put all of them on one screen, so those of you who care can take your pictures or can make notes. I'm going to read through all of them, but I will read quickly, okay? So we're not going to take the time this morning to turn through all of these. But just know that they are all from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 16.10 says, An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. The king does not sin in their judgment. Proverbs 28. The king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. What does the word winnow mean? I'm sorry? I can't hear. I, I'm deaf on one side. Speak loudly. Separate. Sifting. Um, the idea of winnowing is an agricultural term. When you have grain that needs to be separated from the chaff, they literally will put it on a sheet and they'll throw it in the air and let the wind catch this, the lighter weight chaff that will blow it away and then the seed falls back to the ground. And so winnowing is separating the useful from the useless. Separating the good from the bad. So in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 8, the king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. Proverbs 20, 26. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. And that doesn't mean he runs them down with his Volvo. Okay? What that is, again, it's an agricultural term. There were different styles of um, uh, threshing uh, equipment. Some had blades, some had sharpened stones that were underneath this big flat uh, rock, if you will, that was carried, that was pulled uh, over the, the grain, the stalks of grain, I should say. There were other threshing implements that were wheeled. And so, <clears throat> by using this threshing implement with wheels, and pulling it over the stalks of wheat, if you will, or the stalks of barley, it doesn't do as much damage to the seed. But what it does do is it jostles and knocks the seed loose from the stalk, which makes it easier to then separate the chaff from the seed as well, and not have damaged seed. So this idea is the wise king does indeed separate the wicked by doing so in a way that doesn't harm the good. Does that make sense? Okay. Moving on. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 28. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. So, this particular phrase, or phrasing, or wording, is the king exhibits steadfast love and faithfulness as a result, he gets to remain in power. There's a love for his people. 
There's a faithfulness towards his people. He does what is done. All that he does is done out of his love for and his faithfulness to his people. And as a result, he retains power. Proverbs 29.4 By justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. What this is saying is this king who is in power and then has to do judgment, if he does what is right and brings about justice for the people over whom he judges, then he builds up his government. He builds up the, 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 the community of people. If he is receiving bribes or demanding payment for his judgment, he then undermines the government and weakens the government and ultimately can destroy the people to, that he's serving. Proverbs 29.14 says, If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. A king who is faithful to the poor people of the land establishes the throne forever. It doesn't necessarily mean in our form of government that they get to stay on the throne, in other words, remain president, but bringing it into our understanding, think about this. If we have a president who so poorly treats or so mistreats the people who are of the lower ranks of our society, there is the potential for those people to rise up and overthrow the government. Think about what happened when our nation came into being. There was a king over the colonies who was not treating the people well, and the people literally rose up from underneath the king and said, we don't need you anymore, we'll set up our own standards and our own government, and we'll bring up our own leader. And we now, 200 and some years later, are still in that environment where we threw off the, the bad leader who was treating us poorly. And so the reality is, it can happen even in our own day. If you have a leader who is not faithfully taking care of and judging the poor, that throne does not necessarily stay. Proverbs 31.4, the last one in this list. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Now, it goes on, verse 31, verse 5, talks about giving drink, strong drink, to the poor or the one who is sick so that they'll get drunk and forget about their troubles. Okay? The idea being here that the leader should be clear-headed. The leader should have always, always, always the, benefit, the best interest of the, of the people that they're serving and the land that they're trying to, to manage, the government that they're trying to manage. There should always be, there should never be a time where they get to the, where they get to the point where they go, I can't deal with this anymore, I'm just going to get a, a bottle of booze and get drunk. I mean, you know, an escapism mentality. I'm in it for the long haul, I'm here to serve, I'm doing the best that I can and I intend to continue as long as I'm allowed to be in power. So that's what the Bible, what the Proverbs, the wisdom literature of the book of, of, of God, says about what it means to be a good president, if you will. Okay? Now, continuing on with this idea of what is a good leader, I told you I got into chapter 32 and 33 of Isaiah. So let's look 
at Isaiah chapter 32. We're not going to take time this morning to read all of it. We don't have time. Uh, and we will be most likely for the next two, if not three weeks, in these two chapters. But we're going to read chapter 32 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 8. Chapter 32 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 8. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the rash will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. For the fool speaks folly, his mind is busy with evil. He practices ungodliness and spreads error concerning the Lord. The hungry he leaves empty, and from the thirsty he withholds water. The scoundrel's methods are quick. He makes up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies. Even when the plea of the needy is just, but the noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. Going back to verse 1. A king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Righteousness, right relationship with God, justice, doing right for the people. There's a good litmus test for who would be a good president. Having a right relationship with God and who does right by the people. Verse 2. Each man will be a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, the streams of the water in the desert, and a shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. This person who is a good leader will do good things for the people. Not to gain their favor, not to try to win an election, but it will be part of who they are. They will provide shelter and refuge. They will bring refreshing to places that are dry. Verse 3, then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed. The ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the rash will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. And I can tell you that scholars, as I was reading this, are struggled with this. They struggle with this. They're like, what is this doing here? So I can't really speak to this other than to tell you just read it and ask the Holy Spirit to give you insight. Because honestly, I didn't get a clear answer from anybody. And so just read it for what it is. Moving on. Chapter 5. Chapter 32, verse 5. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. That's an interesting statement. No longer will the fool be called noble, and the scoundrel highly respected. So apparently... There was a time in Israel's history, because Isaiah is speaking to the Israelites, where they had fools and scoundrels in leadership over their country. Because they were called noble. 
And they were respected. And some commentaries, some commentaries that I read pointed us right back to chapter 30 and 31, talking about going to Egypt and doing all of that stuff, bringing the animals and the, and the, and the, 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 the gift of offering to the Pharaoh, trying to get the Pharaohs uh, to align and become an ally of the nation of Israel. But, but the, the thing that, that I want to focus on for the next few minutes, because we're still talking about what makes a good leader, is these three words. Fool, knave, and noble one. Three specific words that are used throughout the remaining part of these verses in chapter 32, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Specifically talk about the fool, the knave, and the noble one. So, first of all, the fool. Verse 32, chapter 32, verse 6. The Hebrew that's translated... Fool is the word Nabal. N-A-B-A-L. Nabal. And I'm going to read to you a couple of quotes. And I want to read them because they said this so well, I could not interpret it any better. So let me read to you these two quotes from my study this week on chapter 32, verse 6. In the wisdom schools, the fool was regularly contrasted with the wise. He is the one who has failed to master the disciplines of wisdom, but he is also the one who has a weak character. Listen to this. A fool has a weak character, is easily tempted, and is impetuous in his decisions. The fool can be recognized by foolish speech, a mind dedicated to wickedness, an ungodly lifestyle, and the speaking of heresy against Yahweh. That should be clear enough for the public to recognize. The results of having a fool in charge of things include neglect of welfare programs and failure to take care of water resources in a dry country. That should be warning enough of the consequences of allowing a fool to rule. Number two. In Hebrew thinking, the fool, like the scoffer, is a strongly negative term. It describes someone who has consciously rejected God and his ways. It is not merely, as in English, someone who's stupid and ridiculous. In fact, the fool in the Bible may be someone who is brilliant and attractive. He has simply built his life on a lie. I am accountable to no one but myself, and has dedicated his life to propagating that lie. As a result, the kind of ethics that permeate the Bible are foreign to him. The only language he understands is power. Thus, when it serves his ends, he may do good things for the poor and needy, but if they get in the way of his schemes, he has no concern for them at all. That is the fool. Here is the knave. The Hebrew word translated knave is ke-la-i. Ke-la-i. It's actually spelled K-E-L-I-Y. K-E-L-I-Y, but it's pronounced ke-la-i. And it's knave. Um, the thing that's interesting is, for me, the only time I had ever heard the word knave because it is a word that has fallen out of common use. 
The only time I ever heard the word knave growing up was in an old Mother Goose nursery rhyme. The Queen of Hearts, she made some tarts all in a summer's day. The Knave of Hearts, he stole those tarts and took them clean away. The King of Hearts called for the tarts and beat the Knave full sore. The Knave of Hearts brought back the tarts and vowed he'd steal no more. That's my understanding of what a Knave is. Some guy that steals tarts. Didn't give me a whole understanding. So I go to Merriam-Webster, the best place to go to understand what a knave is. Well, a knave in archaic terminology is simply a boy or a servant. Well, then that makes much more sense to an old nursery rhyme. A knave would be a boy or a servant in the household of the queen who stole the tarts and got a beating for it. That makes sense. But a knave of hearts, or a knave, is also, and again, it's an archaic term, is the jack in the deck of cards. But in current parlance, in today's vernacular, the word knave is a dishonest or unscrupulous person. There are numerous, and I looked it up in multiple different translations, there are numerous words used to translate or define kelai in today's Bibles. And so if you have your Bible open to chapter 32, verse 7, I would like you to tell me what your Bible type is. In other words, is your Bible a King James Version? And here's the word, whatever it is. So feel free to holler it out just yet loud, because Pastor Bob does not hear right now. The message says crooks. The message says crooks. New King James is schemers. New King James is schemers. The American Standard says rogue. Rogue. Okay. NIV says NIV says what? Scoundrel. Scoundrel. Okay. NLT also says scoundrel. English Standard Version also says scoundrel. So, so far we've heard crook, rogue, scoundrel. Three others are churl. Churl is from the American Standard Version and the King James Version. Wicked person from the New Century Version. Villain from the New Revised Standard Version. And in the complete Jewish Bible, it says the mean person who does mean things. <laughs> it's what that translator decided to do. I don't know. So, but do you hear? Let me go through this again. A knave, this K La E, is a churl, a scoundrel, a wicked person, a crook a rogue, a villain, a mean person who does mean things. This is what the commentator has to say about knaves. A knave is different from a bumbling fool. He knows better. He deliberately chooses means that are evil and hatches evil plots. His victims are the poor and needy. 
God's special wars according to the prophets and the Torah. His weapons are slander and false testimony in the very courts that are intended to protect the rights of the people. The definition is clear. No knowledgeable public should tolerate a knave in government. And then finally, verse 8 of chapter 32, the noble one. This is na diyaba, and its spelled transliteration is N-A-D-I-Y-B. N-A-D-I-Y-B. Nadia. The quote from the commentator is this. <clears throat> I have two. A noble one is here and only, excuse me, is here only defined by reusing the same word. The dictionaries relate the word to overtones of motivation and voluntariness. The implication is that is one who has no ulterior motive who can deal objectively, thinking in ways that are not dictated by his personal interests. Noble things are those that such an independent and willing person would support. He would be free of the pressures of party and special interests. The arch structure suggests that nobility be related to the justice and righteousness of the person discussed in, I, in chapter 32, verse 1. Another quote from another commentator on this verse. Many times in life, a fool is treated as someone who is honorable, a noble, simply because he's gained power and wealth. That is not the pattern in Messiah's kingdom. Those are called noble whose actions are noble, that is, generous and giving. The plans and deeds of noble persons are for others, not for themselves. They have learned that the gracious God can be trusted to supply their needs, and thus they no longer need to be grasping, but can become giving. So there you have it, folks. Fool, the knave, or the noble person, according to Isaiah's understanding and, and exhortation to the people of Israel, those are the three choices you got. Now, I am not trying to say that Clinton, Johnson, and Trump fit into one or, or those categories, and you've got to figure out which one is the fool, the knave, and the noble person. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, when I looked at the Word of God to find out what I'm supposed to do about uh, voting... These are the standards that I should be using to look at each individual character and say, which one most closely aligns with all of this? Wow, you've got a lot of work ahead of you over the next two weeks if you haven't already started. Okay? And that then leads me to the hand-wringing. Oh my God, what's going to happen to our country? Oh my God, who should I vote for? Oh God... And the reality, folks, if you open your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 33, there are two specific verses that God wants you to look at. Chapter 33, verse 2, and 33, 22. And I'll read them to you. You don't have to open it back up. Isaiah 33, 2 says, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. 
Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. And verse 22 says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Now, again, I have some, a couple of quotes here I want to read to you as I close this up. The civics lesson that we find here in Isaiah chapter 32, verses 1 to 8, gives the hearer, the reader, the tools to pass judgment on the leaders and their policies that are described in chapter 31. Are those going down to Egypt to be termed fools, knaves, or nobles? Chapter 31 would probably have accepted the designation of both fool and knave as accurate. The episode also serves to place the blame on the public, and this is the part I wanted you to hear. The episode in chapter 31 also serves to place the blame on the public. Any public that fails to recognize the character of its public officials, that fails to speak out in protest, and so bring about changes in personnel and policy, shares the blame for the results. The people of God are often blind, unperceptive, and uncommunicative, not only about the ways of God, but also about the ways of human beings in leadership and government. And when they are so, they stand judged along with the fools and the knaves they fail to identify and remove. You have power, folks. You may think, oh, I'm just one vote. What does it matter? It matters. You've been given a great privilege by being a, a citizen of this country. And you, you should not neglect it, regardless of what anyone on television tells you. Every vote matters. In these circumstances, another quote, in these circumstances, the people of Jerusalem were faced with the utter bankruptcy of government based on human wisdom. It is against this background that Isaiah pointed to the only alternative that could secure the nation's future. A government grounded in the kingship of God. Hezekiah reverted to this kind of government at the 11th hour of the Assyrian crisis, but Isaiah looks in these chapters to the day when this will be the habitual stance of leaders and people alike. Then, indeed, a new age will have dawned. This is the state of affairs we pray for in the words of the prayer Jesus taught us. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The words I want you to hear, folks, are this. Number one, it is your responsibility to vote. And if you don't vote, you stand in just as much judgment as the fool and the knave that is allowed to stay in power. And number two, it is our responsibility as Christians to pray to the King of Kings so that his will will be accomplished, so that the leader that he has already decided should be in place is the one that goes in place. And finally, let me give you a quote out of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-3. through 3. First of all, then I urge you that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, 
godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. If you want to live a good life, if you want to live at peace, If you want to be able to live in a godly and dignified way, you have a responsibility to pray for those who have stepped up into their calling as the leaders of our government, whether it is local, state, or federal. And if you don't, shame on you. So my response to you this morning to those who have been asking me to preach about the election is this. Start now, if you haven't already, and educate yourself. Are you looking at a true Christian who has a worldview that is similar to yours and is neither a fool nor a knave, but is indeed a noble person? If you can answer yes to that person, then vote for them. If you can't find among the top three someone who matches all of that, Find someone who comes real close and vote for that person. But don't vote for anybody until you have specifically prayed the names Hillary Clinton, Gary Johnson, Donald Trump. God, give me wisdom. That's the answer. And that's what you as Christians should be promoting to everybody else in this community. Let's pray.